0: How many Christians are Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians? We would call that a, a low number, right? Um, the Barna Company does polls. You may have heard of the Barna polls that they do. The, um, they have done a lot of really good polls, and what they've discovered is in America, about 6 to 8% of America is Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, born-again Christians. Six to eight percent, and my own opinion is that's right on. I think six to eight out of a hundred people that I meet are true Christians. There would be thirty out of a hundred that would call themselves Christians in America, and I would say twenty two of those are not right and i think I think that's really accurate, actually, okay Well, the same polls find that only 10% of Muslims are violent. Okay. Now let's go with that number, whether you believe that number or not. Let's go with that number. What is that number then? Billion. So, yeah. So it would be 250 million Muslims are violent, okay, extremist, right? That's a big number. <laughs> so then the other 90%, we, I don't care. Nobody, we don't care about them, okay? Because they're not the violent ones. They're not the extremists. I mean, we want them to get saved, of course, but as far as our conversation goes, they're not the issue. The issue is these 10%, but that's a huge issue. 250 million people that want you dead... Is a big deal okay Um, now in this group of 250 million people you can make a general division in half and half of them are one way and half of them another way now we're gonna call this group of extremist Muslims apocalyptic Muslims okay and there's a reason why we use that language is because the reason why they're extremist is not not so much the Quran it's their eschatology. They have a very specific eschatology. These imams or their pastors, are, they all interpret the Quran differently. And there's a few that have developed an eschatology or a study of their own end times events that is important for us to understand. And 10% of Muslims fall into this apocalyptic view of the Qur'an and of of, um, the end times. One group is Iran. Iran has a caliphate, okay, and they are very specific about their eschatology, okay? And their eschatology, they say, is, we need to be ready for the Messiah. The Messiah they call the 12th Imam or... There's another name for it, and I can look it up in one second here. Um, The other name... Eh, I can't remember the other name right now. I have it in this piece of paper, but it's very long, so I'm not going to try to look it up right now. Anyway, they, they have a name for their Messiah, and their Messiah is going to come someday, they believe, and when he comes, Iran will be responsible for killing all infidels now an infidel is a Christian a Jew or a Muslim that does not accept this Messiah and his rule so it's not just Christians and Jews it's Muslims too um, that these Muslims hate (laughs) which is why they're killing all the people over there that we see if you ever see the videos or anything they're always killing muslims right i mean it's very rarely that they're lining up christians and killing them they, they have but the in the 90s percent of the people that they're killing are muslim and you're like why are you killing other muslims because this isn't a muslim thing this is a very small well big but small portion of the muslims have this apocalyptic view and one of the groups is iran so iran again to summarize iran's view Is that they need to be ready for the Messiah and they need to gather nuclear weapons so that when the Messiah comes, they can nuke everybody. That's what they feel in their heart that their eschatology teaches them to be ready for. Okay? The second group of apocalyptic Muslims is what? ISIS. ISIS is a huge group, and their eschatology is different, they believe it is their spiritual responsibility to kill all the infidels first, and that will prepare the way for the Messiah. They believe that their Messiah, their Muslim Messiah will not come until the infidels are dead. So which one is more dangerous? Well, they both are, <laughs> but ISIS is a more present and active danger than Iran is, okay? So you guys have might have heard of this deal that the UN and the United States made with Iran. Uh, <laughs> it's a vi- we're not going to spend a ton of time on it. It's very easy to study it and understand that it's a terrible deal. It is going to pave the way for them to get nuclear weapons. That is what it is. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, And the United States with uh, Iran is just blind to what's going on because they don't understand this spiritual side of what's going on. We're going to get to the Bible in just a minute about how this all kind of relates to the Bible and what's going to happen in the end times. Okay, But just so you know, the United States has made a deal with Iran that they can have nuclear power and do all these things to unfreeze assets and to get a lot of money and eventually be able to get their own nuclear bomb. Okay. The deal specifically says they're not supposed to have a nuclear bomb, but we're giving them everything they need and just saying, no, don't do it. And it's really dumb. Okay. So <clears throat> now ISIS is different Again, then Iran, ISIS says we want to kill everyone now. We want to create a caliphate, a Muslim-controlled uh, state that has all our rules, where the Messiah can come and rule from our country is what they want to do. And their goals, this is their, um, their goals of ISIS given to us in 2015, this year. Where this is the last day of 2015. These are their stated goals. To conquer Jerusalem, Mecca, and Medina. And you may think, I thought Mecca and Medina were already Muslim. But this, yeah. See, Mecca's in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is very liberal Muslims. They are not about fighting. They don't care. They hardly care about Muhammad. They really don't care. They are about oil and money. That's what they care about. So you always hear about Saudi princes, right? because they're rich and, I mean, they're religious to some point, but they do not have this apocalyptic bend to their religion, okay? They're, they're like the guys you could go and hang out with, okay? You could have a conversation with them. I have talked to Saudis, and you can. It's real. Um, so the ISIS's goal is to conquer Jerusalem, Mecca, and Medina, to annihilate all Jewish, Christian, and Muslim infidels, to establish a global Islamic kingdom or caliphate and to hasten the end of days and the coming of the Islamic Messiah known as the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I, the Mahdi, that's the word I was trying to think of earlier. Okay, so ISIS chief, his name is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, he warned the state of Israel in a new, newly released 24-minute audio that the Israelis will, so, Israelis will soon see us in Palestine. This is no longer a war of the crusaders against us. The entire world is fighting us now. And then he goes on to say in the same recording that they're going to overthrow the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And then he calls on all the Saudi citizens loyal to ISIS to overthrow their apostate tyrants. Okay, so ISIS is all about expanding, all about spreading their views, and and this is... Their thing now what i'm going to tell you guys tonight is i'm not too worried about isis and i'm not too worried about iran okay i think they're both being controlled by something much much more sinister and that is going to be russia okay that's the real problem here and we're going to see that in the bible unfold and we're going to see um as we get more into some of this. Okay, so <clears throat> what if they were to team up, ISIS and Iran? You'd have quite a big army going on there. What if one country was controlling both of them? I think we're going to see that Russia <clears throat> is that country. Okay, uh, I'm going to read to you from the Washington Post. Wow, well, I shouldn't have told you, but. I'm going to read you an article. Forget I said that. (laughs) Iran is following through on the nuclear deal it struck with the U.S.-led coalition in an utterly predictable way. It is racing to fulfill those parts of the accord that will allow it to collect $100 billion in frozen funds and end sanctions on its oil exports and banking system while expanding its belligerent and illegal activities in other areas and daring the West to respond. Unfortunately, the Obama administration uh, administration's response to these provocations has been familiar. It is doing its best to downplay them, and thereby encouraging Tehran to press for still greater advantage. Who said this? You might be surprised. It wasn't the Israeli prime minister. It's not a GOP presidential. It is the liberal Washington Post edit- editorial slamming the Obama administration's willing Ignorance of Iran's blatant violations of the nuclear accord. Okay? So, obviously, that's what's going on there. Now, we're going to talk about Syria. Okay? ISIS is based in Syria. ISIS started in northern Iraq and Syria, and it has now made like basically their own country out of northern Iraq and Syria. And Syria is kind of having a civil war, and half of it belongs to ISIS, and the northern half of Iraq belongs to ISIS, and it's made its own country. Now, they control everything. The airports, everything in this little area belongs to them. Now, this conflict in Syria, you might have heard about. There's been over 250,000 Syrians, most civilians, killed during this civil war that they have going on. Serious president is Bashar Assad. He is major loser. Okay, he is completely evil. He wants the destruction of Israel, but he is not apocalyptic. Okay, so for a long time, Bashar Assad has been the United States' biggest enemy. We have wanted Bashar Assad out. And so what happened is we trained a bunch of rebels, Sunni Muslims. Now, Sunni Muslims are the calm, not apocalyptic Muslims, but they want political power, and they did not like Bashar Assad either, and so the United States trained Sunni Muslim rebels. Now, the Sunni Muslim rebels we trained started the civil war. Then ISIS happened. ISIS are more extreme than the Sunnis, and ISIS is getting help from someone else. Who do you think that is? Russia. ISIS is getting trained and helped by Russia in some parts. Okay? So this really ceased to be a civil war in Syria, and it is now a proxy war between the United States and Russia. Mm. Our rebels against their (coughs) rebels Bashar Assad has no more power. He's sitting there as the president of this country with two different types of rebels he's trying to fight. The, the, the army of Syria itself is nothing. It is, has no strength. It can't do anything right now because the American rebels have been fighting them, and now the ISIS rebels are fighting them, and they're all fighting each other. So you have this three fronts on this war, three people, three groups of people fighting in Syria for control. Okay? There's already a winner. And the winner is Russia. We'll see this, okay? Check this out. We can tell this because of John Kerry and his words. So I want you to know, I want you to remember the words ceasefire, okay? Um, Ayad Kuder is a Damascus-based political analyst. He lives in Damascus. This is what he says. It is remarkable that Western leaders only remember the term ceasefire when their rebels on the ground are losing. Why didn't they see the need for peace in Syria before the Russian operation started? Imagine if America was uh, elected a president who was uh, much worse than Bush or Obama, someone that was a uh, tyrant. Would it be, would that be sufficient sufficient justification for? someone like Vladimir Putin and Russia to train Mexican and Canadian mercenaries to invade America, kill US citizens, destroy cities and critical infrastructure, seize vital oil refineries and pipeline corridors, behead public government officials and prisoners that they cap- captured and declare their own independent state here in America. Oh, it's a, it's of course not. The question is ridiculous. It wouldn't matter if the U.S. president was a tyrant or not. It doesn't justify the invasion of armed proxies from another country. And yet this is precisely the policy that the United Secretary of State, John Kerry, proposed to the United Nations on Friday. So nationally, you'll hear a lot of blabber about this roadmap to peace in Syria. Okay, And John Kerry talks about it all the time. And uh, what he's actually doing is uh, defending a policy that has led to the death of 250,000 Syrian people, civilians, and basically the destruction of their country, okay? So that was plan A, was for the United States to get rid of Bashar Assad. We didn't like him, we thought he was mean, and he didn't help us in our interests in that part of the world. Now, obviously, I don't think the United States is, is right in a lot of the foreign policy that is being enacted right now, obviously. So plan B has been to get our rebels out and give up Syria. They're now focused on cutting their losses and saving as many of their guys— as possible naturally the people who we funded armed and trained and deployed uh, as these Sunni fighters uh, we feel responsible for their safety so we're gonna do whatever we can to get out and this is what what John Kerry is doing right now Uh, his job this last week was to fly to Moscow and to tell Putin that Obama had changed his mind about the regime change and to get the Kremlin to back Kerry's UN resolution on this roadmap to peace. Check this out. The primary objective of this farce that Kerry's doing is to garner international support for, uh, to label these terrorists as moderates, okay, and to move in the direction of the UN-mandated ceasefire uh, that would stop the Russian invasion in its tracks, okay? So the Russian, their people would, would have to stop as well. Um, so isn't that what everyone wants, to end the hostilities? Not exactly. Uh, a war against terrorists is different than a war between nation states or a civil war. Uh, a group like the, these um, ISIS that we're talking about, they can't be treated the same way as armed members of a political opposition. These are religious fanatics determined to use any means possible to achieve their goal of this fascist Islamic caliphate. So a uh, reasoned discourse doesn't work with people like this, they have to be killed or captured. And this is exactly what the Russian-led coalition is doing, is killing and capturing other extremists through ISIS. <laughs> um, so they are killing other coalition members like Iranians, Hezbollah and Syrian Arab army. ISIS is just killing them all because ISIS knows how to deal with radical Muslims. They kill them. And that's how they get people to join their side. And it's working for them. So Kerry's job is to throw a wrench in the anti-terror campaign and impede the coalition's progress. And he's willing to lie to do it. Case in point, here's a quote from Kerry from Moscow just last Tuesday. As I emphasize today, the United States and our partners are not seeking so-called regime change as it is known in Syria, which has been the only thing we've been doing for the past three years. Later in that day, Kerry underscored the administration's dramatic about face saying we are not trying to do a regime change. We are not engaged in a color revolution. We are not engaged in trying to interfere with another country. We're trying to make peace. Okay, so the U.S. has given up on regime change? Not at all. Actually, Kerry is just lying through his teeth as usual. Here's what he says 24 hours later. Russia can't stop the war with Assad because Assad attracts the foreign fighters. Assad is a magnet for terrorists because they're coming to fight Assad. So if you want to stop the war in Syria, as we do, if you want to fight Daesh, which is ISIS, and to stop the growth of terrorism, you have to deal with the problem of Assad. Now, that doesn't mean we want to change every, axis of the go- every aspect of the government. We don't. Got that? So the United States doesn't support regime change, but Assad still has to go. That's what's going on with the United States. So basically, all this means, I know it's a little confusing, is that Russia has won. Russia's won. If there was a war between our proxies and their proxies, their proxies won. Russia is now in complete control of this. Now, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 17. This is where it gets fun. That was all the current events. <laughs> What's going on? So now check this out. In Isaiah chapter 17, are you looking for something? Purse. Oh, a Okay. <laughs> it says in verse one, the burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. This is a prophecy that I don't think has been fulfilled yet. Uh, Damascus hasn't ever been completely destroyed where no one would ever live there again. People live there today. In fact, if you go to the Damascus City website, now I did this a couple years ago, it's been a while, but the um, English version of the Damascus City website Their logo still is Damascus, the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. Now, isn't that funny that that's exactly what Isaiah 17 says will not be the case about Damascus? I find that interesting. So, there is going to come a time where Damascus is going to be destroyed. Wiped out. Yes. It is the capital of Syria. Oh, Oh, so everything we've been talking about, yeah. I think it is going to be a nuclear bomb of some sort. Uh, There's a novel written by Joel Joel Rosenberg that says that, you know, he thinks that they're going to be trying to launch a nuke at Israel. I personally believe they're going to attack Israel, and Israel's going to respond by nuking them. Okay, because Israel is not afraid to nuke someone. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Uh, Turn with me to Amos chapter 1. Amos is a Little known minor prophet, right after Joel, Amos chapter 1. <clears throat> For thus says the Lord, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. You guys find it? Okay. Amos chapter 1, verse 3. It says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. Okay, so this is a a poetic way that the Lord speaks through the prophet of Amos, and it's a common thing that he says. And usually it just means because of all the bad things that they've done, I'm going to punish them. But this one is really interesting because sometimes it can mean, They've done three things. The fourth time they do it, punishment will come. Now, it's very, very interesting that since Syria, or since Israel became a nation in 1948, Syria or Damascus has invaded Israel three times. Three times. The fourth time, I believe, Israel will nuke them. All right. Now, this is crazy, okay? Because (sighs) go ahead and turn to Ezekiel chapter 38. And we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at Ezekiel 38 and 39. And I think Ezekiel 38 and 39 is showing us either what happens right after. Damascus gets nuked, or actually how Damascus gets nuked, okay? This is very, very interesting. I, I'm, I'm shocked almost at the events recently. I didn't expect Russia to take control of Syria. I thought Syria would be its own sovereign nation until the time of the very end when Israel would nuke Damascus, and that would kick off this Gog and Magog invasion. The reason I say that is because I've always thought that Syria is not mentioned in this invasion. Let's go ahead and read a little bit of Ezekiel 38 and then I'll explain what I'm talking about here. Chapter 37 is about Israel becoming a nation again after 2,000 years of being scattered around the world. It's seen as a valley of dry bones, and these dry bones receive life and come back into the land. And it's very clearly says, This is Israel in the latter days. Okay? So now we have, we know we're in the latter days. And then in verse chapter 38, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now, to the untrained, that is a very confusing sentence, (laughs) but Gog is a demonic um, entity. He is a personality that has some sort of spiritual influence over an area of the world. We learn many times in the Bible that there are demons that are in charge of certain areas of the world. Gog is the one that's in charge of Magog, Rosh, and Tubal, and, and, uh, Tubal. Now, in Genesis, we learned the table. We studied the table of nations that showed us where all these people settled. That's why God gives us these words. He doesn't say Russia because the people in this time wouldn't have understood Russia. So He gives us the names that He gave back in Noah's day, in the book of Genesis. And he's, so we know exactly where all these people are. Magog is the ancient name for Moscow, and it's the people of Magog. Who settled up in that area, the Scythians, okay? Then you have the Prince of Rosh, which is actually the ancient name for Russia, okay? And then Meshek and Tubol. Tubol is Tubolsk, which is in southern Russia, Ukraine. Tubolsk is a city right there. It's in this, the Russian, it's part is saying again, Russia to us. It's just, it's giving us a full understanding that these are the Russian people coming down. Okay, and this is very important that they are the main part of this end times thing that's going to happen. Now, this whole chapter, this Ezekiel 38 and 39, is right before the tribulation, at the very beginning of the tribulation, right around that time, which means the rapture could be before this, it could be after this, it could be right, I think it's right around this time. The rapture is going to happen, because if this stuff happens, the world is hardly going to even care about a bunch of Christians disappearing, because this stuff that's described is wild. And then you have the whole tribulation start, so the Antichrist is going to come to power. Antichrist isn't here yet in this, in this story, so let's, let's read a little more. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendid clothes, a great, great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, which is Iran, Ethiopia, and Libya, which are the northern Muslim nations of Africa, are with them, and all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer, which is actually the people of Germany, and all its troops and the house of Tagarma from the far north and all its troops and many people are with you. So that's Turkey and the the Muslim nations of Turkey and Hungary, uh, um, where Istanbul is today. Those are Muslim nations as well. They're going to be joined in this uh, event here, this invasion. Uh, Many people are with you. Verse 7, prepare yourselves and be ready and all your companies that are gathered about you and be on guard for them. After many days you will be visited, and in the latter years you will come into the land uh, of those who were brought back from the sword and gathered from uh, many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate, and which were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. So we see some clues. We see some time clues. He says, this is the end, the time of the end. This is the, the end times, okay? And these people that you're attacking, Israel, are a people that have come out from all the nations. And that is definitely something that can only be after 1948. Okay, we know that this is end times. They dwell safely. Okay, well, Israel actually dwells in relative safely, safety right now. I was in Israel two years ago. And I never felt safer in my entire—I feel safer in Israel than I do walking down 16th Street here in Denver. No doubt I felt safer there. And even when they have craziness and suicide bombers and stuff, I still—it has a general feel of safety. People don't have bars on their doors and windows, and we see that mentioned here in just a minute. So you have um, just these descriptions that we know where this is going, okay? Now, verse 10, thus says the Lord on that day, it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. That's Israel. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell in safety, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. Again, a good description of Israel. To take plunder and to take booty and to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited. It's mentioned a couple times that it used to be waste, but now it's inhabited. It used to be barren, now it's fruitful. Now, one of the most amazing agricultural facts in the entire world is the nation of Israel. They are now the number one exporter of tulips in the entire world. They have... uh, more export of fruit than almost any nation they are the most productive nation when it comes to uh people versus production export in the world it is unbelievable it was see what happened is in 70 a.d when well actually in a couple hundred years after that when the muslims came in they decided to tax everyone based on how many trees were on your land so what did everyone do in israel cut down all the trees okay so Israel became very desertous. It used to be very mountainous in Jesus' day, and before it was forested, like I would say Colorado Springs, that type of thing. But now, it will, but throughout all those thousands of years, it became very deserted. Okay? They lost all the water, the, the nutrients of the uh, ground went away. Israel, the first thing they did is they planted 25 million trees a year from 1948 through, like, the 70s, okay? And they have, again, made Israel this very amazingly fruitful place. You go there now, and there's, I mean, there is desert area, but there are areas of just greenhouses upon greenhouse and all this amazing agriculture. You guys have been there. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how fruitful this land is now. So, also, they've discovered oil there. Up in the Golan Heights, they've made some major discoveries of oil. And this is a big, big problem (laughs) because everyone in the world, or especially Russia, is getting very intrigued by these riches. To take plunder, verse 12, to take booty, stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited. And against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods and dwell in the midst of the land, Sheba and Dedan. And the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take away booty, to tear away silver and gold, and to take away livestock and goods and great plunder? So we have a couple new characters into our our story here. Sheba and Dedan. Sheba and Dedan is very clearly Saudi Arabia. Again, we've mentioned Saudi Arabia. They're not extreme Muslim. They're not ISIS. What do they have? Money and they are right next to Israel. And so they see this Russian invasion coming, and they're like, hey, 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 are you coming to take our oil too? Because you're coming with an awful big army for this awful tiny nation of Israel. And the truth is, yes, they are coming to take Saudi Arabia's oil in addition to disarming Israel. Well, (coughs) Israel... um, what was the other thing? Oh, Sheba and Didan and Tarshish. Tarshish was a term for Spain or even further to, it was just the land far, far west, uh, which used to be thought of as Spain, but more recently it's been thought of as Great Britain. Now, Great Britain is a sane <laughs> nation, you could call it. And if this were to happen tomorrow, Great Britain would say, hey, you She probably shouldn't do it. But it also says the young lions of Tarshish would say, hey, this is not right. This is not okay. Now, the young lions of Tarshish, I believe, is the only reference to the United States and Australia and Canada and the, the colonies of Great Britain that are linked still with Great Britain. And that's what I think. Now, obviously, they are seen as weak, futile nothing important is really coming out of this. They only can protest. They don't do anything. Now, that could either be because we have the president we have now or because all the Christians have been raptured and the United States is now left powerless because the United States is the only nation that would really be devastated if the rapture happened. We are the only country that has Christians in high levels of government And, um, and law enforcement and things like that. Um, China has more Christians than we do, but they're all nameless, faceless, um, no real areas of influence. China would go on just fine after losing 200 million Christians. So America is really going to be devastated. That's why I believe the rapture is right around this time. The rest of the world has been living without the Holy Spirit for years the United States still has this, this foundation of God, um, not, not the country, but a lot of the people. There's still, I, I mean, 6 to 8%, if we were to say that that's what's going to get raptured, A, it's not a lot of them are going to be missed. B, that is going to really affect this country, though. You know, I think the, the places that they're in have a lot of influence. So, yeah. Um, so I think that they, they do say, hey, what's going on? But again, they don't do anything. All right, verse 14. Therefore, says the Lord God, uh, say to Gog, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding horses in a great company and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land, and it will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land, so the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in my former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? All right, so now the really interesting thing is that the nations that are not mentioned in this invasion, that's what really catches our eye, okay? Syria is not mentioned. Now, Syria is in line first place to attack Israel right now. They hate Israel. They've launched Scud missiles at Israel just for the fun of it. They have done all kinds of stuff. Now, right now, as of today, Israel says, if you ever launch a Scud missile at us again, we are going to nuke you. So option number one is that Bashar Assad, in some crazy fit of insanity, launches some sort of an invasion, and we see Amos chapter 1, verse 3, come to pass where God Judges them and Israel's launch said, hey, we told you, you killed 200 people with a Scud missile, we're nuking you. And they push the button. So what would happen in that situation is the world would freak out. You just killed 25 million people in Damascus with a nuclear bomb. You obviously cannot be trusted as a sane human being, Israel. And so the world would form this coalition to go disarm Israel. And Russia's like, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. I already have troops there. (laughs) Ha ha. Well, so that's option number one of why Syria is not mentioned. Option number two, and this is kind of what's come to me even just today as we're thinking about this, is that Syria is not mentioned because they're completely engulfed in Russia, which is really what we're seeing today. They are just a proxy of Russia right now. If Russia wants them to go left, they go left. If Russia wants them to go right, they go right. That is Syria today. And I think it's just going to get more and more. Now they have full-on bases and troops in Syria. I mean, they they are in control. And with what's happened this week with John Kerry, we've said we're out. we're, We're done fighting this. We're not going to train it. We just want our guys out. We're done. You can have it. We're done. So... That's why, what I—that's the really interesting thing that we're looking at today. That's really kind of the development and prophecy for this year, and what we may see coming up this year is some major events with Syria. The other country that's really interesting, why it's not mentioned, is Iraq. Okay, but it makes sense this year that it didn't. It, five years ago, if we would have thought about this, we would have been like, Iraq has to. Iraq hates Israel just like everyone else. They have to be involved in this invasion. But now we can totally understand Iraq doesn't even have an army anymore. They are nothing. They have no infrastructure. They are completely destroyed, devastated. The north is, totally belongs to ISIS. The south is in shambles. They have no interest in being involved in an invasion. They can't. They have nothing left. So you see how things are falling into place. Things are, coming, are, are going at an amazing speed Excuse me, to be ready for this invasion. Now, let's read the end of it so we don't get left on like oh just here's this invasion. <laughs> so what happens now in verse eighteen, now it come to pass in that same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God. That my fury will show in my face, for in my jealousy and in my fire and in my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men who are in the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And I. I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him and on his troops and on many peoples who are with him, flooding, rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord God. So that's the general description of what's going to happen. God's going to do this miraculous destruction of this nation on the northern side of Israel, which is right where what is? Syria and Damascus. Okay? They're going to be coming right into Israel. God's going to send all this miraculous stuff against them. Now we're going to see the next chapter is a zoomed in magnifying glass on this event, and it gives us more descriptions. So what we can really see is that this disaster that comes upon these people is a nuclear weapon, clearly described. So let's look at it. Verse chapter 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I'm against you, Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you around and lead you on and bring you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. And you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel you and all your troops and all the peoples who are with you. And I will give you to the birds of prey uh, of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall upon the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in the sanctuary in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name any more. See, this is... God is saying, this is me starting a work in the people of Israel. What do we know about the tribulation? That it is the time when God begins to work again with the people of Israel. Well, where's the church? The church is in heaven, safely tucked away as the bride of Jesus Christ, the Son. And so now God, the Father, says, I'm going to go get my bride, I'm going to prepare again my people that I've prophesied about, that I'm going to come back for them and they are going to turn back to me. So God is beginning this work of working in the hearts of the Israeli people, the Jewish people, so that they will again one day turn at the end of the tribulation when they see the Messiah. And Zechariah 14 and chapter 12 says, um, they will look upon him whom they pierced and say, where did you get these wounds? And he'll say, i got these wounds in the house of my friends. And they will all mourn like a mother mourns for her firstborn child and say, what have we done? We crucified Jesus and then we rejected him for 2,000 years. And then they turn to him. Every Jew who's alive at the end turns to Jesus Christ as their Savior, which is amazing. This is the beginning of that process. And God says he's got, he had a time period of working with the nation of Israel and that was described in Daniel chapter nine. The seventy weeks or seven periods, seventy periods of seven years, four hundred ninety years, where he would be working with the nation of Israel. And he said, by the end of this four hundred ninety years, all of them will believe, and my my Messiah will be reigning on the earth. Well, four hundred eighty-three years of those pass, and this is a very deep study, and we'll get into it another time. But four hundred eighty-three of those years pass, and then Jesus marches into Jerusalem and says, "I'm your Messiah." And and they all are saying, Hosanna, blessed is him who comes in the name of the Lord. It's Palm Sunday. One week later, he's crucified. The time clock stops. How much time is left on those 400 years? Seven years. Well, where do we hear of another period of seven years? The Great Tribulation. The time where God again turns his attention towards the nation of Israel and starts doing miraculous things to protect them, to show them himself and to reveal that Jesus is the Messiah that came for them and to soften their hearts and get them ready. Now, for them, it's going to be seven years of horrible tribulation, great trouble. But for us, we are up in heaven. The church is this parenthesis, it's this time period, not talked about in the Old Testament ever. The church was a mystery in the Old Testament. Nobody ever saw the church. They saw this coming in the Messiah and this coming in the Messiah. It's like, a, like if you look on the mountains, when we look up and you're driving up I-70, you see all these mountains just like this, and you don't see the valleys down below. But there's like cities and all kinds of stuff in those valleys, but you don't see it. The Old Testament prophets were way down here looking up here, and they see the Messiah reigning here, and they see the cross here. And they could see those two events, but the valley here is this, is this time of the church that we live in. And they didn't see that they didn't prophesy about it. it wasn't around they never as the church talked about in the Old Testament. Jesus talks about it so when the church ends, when we are all taken up into heaven, then God again works with the nation of Israel for those seven years, and then they they end up receiving him and believing in him and that's that's the purpose of the book of Revelation is so that we can see how God. Works in their hearts through these seven years, and he gives us so much detail, and gives them a lot of details, so that they can work through this and find out, hey, Jesus is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. Now, in in verse chapter thirty nine, verse uh, verse. What we leave off on? We'll, send, we'll start six. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse seven. So I will make my holy name known in the, in the midst of my people Israel and not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, as says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the city of Israel will go and set fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers and the bows and the arrows and the javelins and spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. Interesting. I think it's very telling that the Lord gives us this insight of a time period that this kicks off. This starts. This starts. A period of seven years. Now, they're going to be burning the weapons. What does that mean? I have no idea. They're somehow figuring out how to use their weapons for fuel. That's all I can figure. Okay? Now, they will not, but I mean, these are going to be tanks and, and stuff like that. That's what we know this is going to be. So they're somehow going to figure out how to use that stuff for fuel. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any of the forest because they will make fires of the weapons, and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord. And it will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place in Israel in the valley of those who pass by the east of the sea, and it will obstruct travellers because they will bury Gog and his multitude. Therefore they will call it the valley of Ham and Gog for seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and to bury the bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. They will search, and the search party will pass through the land. And when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in, va- in the valley of and gog The name of the city will also be Hamanoth, and thus they will cleanse the land. This describes exactly the procedure for cleaning up a nuclear disaster a nuclear bomb you cannot go in the area for seven months after seven months you can have a search party that wears special clothes like they said and they go throughout. and every time they see a man's bone they have to put a marker by it then a different search party with different clothes comes and takes the bone and buries it in a special place this is completely describing a radioactive war zone and that's what happens Very soon in our future this is what's gonna happen now are we gonna see this invasion I don't know I I think I think we might I think the rapture may take place right after this nuclear bomb goes off maybe right at the same time so it's a distraction I don't know but I know that this is the beginning of God dealing with the nation of Israel and protecting the nation of Israel and uh, so As we go about this year, what do we need to be focused on? When 2016 is coming up and we are living our lives here in America very far away from all of this. I mean, we see it on the news, we think about it, but what needs to be our focus? What do you guys think? What was that? Telling people about Jesus. Jesus. Amen. Amen. Can I share my devotions with you this morning? Okay, so this morning I was in, I was in 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 6, and in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's a story about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Now David has just become the king of all Israel. He was the king of Judah for seven years. Now he's the king of all Israel, and he's super excited about it. I mean, he's so happy to finally have all of his family, all the Jews, his family under him, and he can, he's, he's kind of like hyper. And he's like, I got to get stuff done. And so he, he goes and he conquers Jerusalem, like kicks the Jebusites out. Ah, oh, get out of here. This is my city now. And he builds a whole city. I mean, he's like building. Jerusalem is now the city of David. And he's building this entire new city, the city of David. And he's having kids. He has like seven kids. And then he's doing this. I mean, he's really busy during this time. Very excited, very industrious, okay? He's he's all about getting stuff done. And man, I got to do this and I'm building this. I'm building a tabernacle. you You know what I need to do? I need to build a tabernacle for the Lord. So he builds this tabernacle for the Lord in the city of David. And he's all excited about it. And he's like, oh, you know what I need? The Ark of the Covenant. That's God's actual presence. We definitely need that here in this city. I'm super excited. So you know what? Let's go get, go get the Ark of the Covenant. He sends some people to go get the Ark of the Covenant. Big party says, this is a big deal. Let's build a brand new cart that nothing else has ever written on. So we build a brand new cart, puts the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. It's rolling down the road. And one of the oxen stumbles. And Uzzah, this guy who is following, puts his hand out to steady the Ark. And God strikes him dead. And David, he gets super angry, and he gets really afraid of God, and he puts the ark in a house that was just right there, the house of Obed-Edom, and he leaves for three months just stewing angry, just like, oh man, doesn't God know I'm on a schedule? Doesn't God know that I'm trying to do my best here? I mean, what what the heck is going on here he's just so disappointed so angry and he's just stewing okay now oped edom he's this guy that was just standing there watching the ark go by and this guy gets struck down in front of his house and he's just there and and the ark gets put in his house and david's like oh god i'm so ticked off about god he doesn't he's such a meanie and Obed-Edom, over the next three months, he gets extremely blessed. Every part of his life is blessed. He wins the lotto. He grows three inches. He All his fat goes away. He's just got rippling muscles, everything going great for him. His kids all get accepted to Harvard. I mean, he is just, everything is going great for him. His wife wakes up, her hair is just always in perfect curls all the time. Jews love that. Anyway, Um so he's 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 just super blessed. And someone is like, dude, you are so blessed. And someone goes and talks to David the king and they're like, David, guess what? Obed Edom is like so blessed. I mean, he's just got the Ark of the Covenant. He's just been hanging out with the Ark of the Covenant, and his life is everything he touches is gold. I mean, he is just so blessed. And I think David took a moment and he just thought about something. And he said, you know, in these past three months, I have not been happy. And the Ark of the Covenant, it says specifically, is where God would hang out. He would dwell between the cherub. There's two cherub, two angels on the top, and God would hang out right there. That's where he liked to hang out. And Obed-Edom, just by luck, got to hang out with God for three months. And his life was full of all this blessing. And I think David took a moment and David was just like, "Um, I have screwed up. God to me became a, nut- a thing on my checklist to do. And, and I think David reassessed his priorities and he, he changed. And he said, you know what? I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to go back to what? I'm going to go back to where God... And me were just friends and where I could spend time with him and where I wasn't concerned about running a kingdom. See, this is David right at the beginning of running Israel. And he got really super intense about it. And God's like, calm your butt down. This is not about you. So what did he do? He goes down and he gets the Ark of the Covenant. This time he does not put it on a cart a cart that would make it easy to travel all the way to Jerusalem. No, this time he listens to the instructions in the book of Numbers where it said that the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried by people on poles on their shoulders. Now that sucks. (laughs) That takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. And David was okay with that now because he wasn't as concerned about efficiency as he was about doing things right and i think he was thinking you know what i'm going to enjoy this i'm going to just spend some time enjoying this so david himself goes and he puts the ark on on some people carrying it and then he says hey let's do this every six steps we'll stop and we'll sacrifice an ox and fatted lamb and we'll worship the lord every six steps And that's what they did. They spent however long it took to walk from where it was to Jerusalem, which is several miles. I mean, like in the teens of miles. I'm not sure exactly the mile. I didn't look it up. I know it's several miles. And they spent all this time, every six steps, worshiping God through sacrifice. And they were playing music the whole entire time. Okay, so fast forward to when they're rolling into Jerusalem like this. If all these people, and David has been with him the entire time now, he, he could have made this journey a hundred times on, on a cart. But now he's just, no, I'm gonna I'm going to just enjoy this. I'm going to spend this time with the Lord. I'm going to rejoice with the Lord. And by this time, David is so happy, he's stripped down to his underwear. It says he's in a linen ephod. And he's dancing around and whirling before the ark of the Lord, so happy and rejoicing. It says he was dancing with all his might before the Lord. Now this is a different guy than the guy who, three, who earlier spent three months depressed because God was so mean. And serving God is such a burden. No, he now he's a completely different guy. Why? Because he stopped trying to be efficient and he started just hanging out in God's presence and taking some time to spend with God. Stop trying to get stuff done. And what did he turn into? He turned into the happiest guy ever. He was just so happy. He was dancing and whirling and just, God, you're so great. And I'm so happy now. I'm so filled with joy and peace and everything I wanted before. Now I have. And you know what? The kingdom is doing fine. It didn't really need me. And Michael, his wife, the daughter of Saul, she's a very practical lady and very up to the plant, And she, you know, she looked out her window and saw David dancing in his underwear. And she's like, "You are a disgrace." She came and talked to him. She said, "How glorious did the king of Israel look dancing, like in his underwear? I bet all the maidens were looking at you. And I, you know, we have a kingdom to run. We have uh, a, an image to uphold. What are you doing, David?" And David's like, "You know what?" I'll get even more undignified than this, and I'm going to humble myself even more because I love God. And I forgot about that when I first became king. And now I just want to love him with all my heart. And Michael, it says, never had another child. Never had a child. David and her, their relationship just didn't work after that because she was concerned about their position and their empire and their kingdom. And David was concerned about his father in heaven and his kingdom. And David was concerned about loving him and, and playing music to him and dancing around in his underwear. And I don't even know what that means except David was free and he was happy and he was just excited about spending time with God. And in, that's what God spoke to me this morning in my devotions. That whole chapter, just I read it probably four times, getting all these insights, and and I really feel that that was our message for tonight. Like what we were supposed to look at tonight uh, is is God is not concerned with you guys getting a lot of stuff done. He really wants you to just dance with Him. Just spend that time where your your life then becomes a picture. People are like. Why are you so happy? Why do you have this joy? Why is life just so easy for you? And, and God's just the center of everything, and he's just blessing you. You know, there's so many great parts to that story, Obed, Edom, and David. That's so awesome. So with all that being said, that's what we got for tonight. Is there any questions about end times, things that you see going on, or, or what the Bible says about stuff? Yeah.